Billy, thanks so much for doing this, mate. I've wanted to ask you for a long time, and I'm very grateful that you came on. Mate, uh, obviously just finished the 2023 version of the Shoot Shield. Had a little bit of air time away from it now. H- how do you reflect on 2023 for the competition as a whole, uh, for you personally? Yeah, how do you look back on it? Um, look, 2023 was a uh, year where incredibly close competition. Um, I think over the recent years, the competition's gotten closer and closer and hasn't gotten better. Yeah. It disappoints some people. I don't mean that in the wrong way. So the competition is brilliant as long as you're not as long as you're not in it every week. Um, because it's an incredibly intense competition. Uh, I think, yeah, the bottom team can beat the top team every week, which is wonderful. But the quality of the competition hasn't gotten better. So people will say it has because the closeness of it has gotten uh, – it, it keeps getting closer and closer. Yeah. Um, but not necessarily better and better. But, hey, the contest on the weekend is still uh, right up there. It's, it, it, you know, it's very even across the board. What do you put that down to? Because I agree with you. And I think I, I've been, this will be year 17 next year for me. I, I can only imagine how long you've been doing it for. The competition has evolved over my time. And I definitely I definitely agree with you. But what do you put that down to? Uh, that's the, the, the proliferation of pro leagues around the world. So years ago, um, you know, you had super rugby and uh, not a lot else. Like if you go back, if, well, certainly, if you go back to the uh, to the dark ages when I played, you know, we'll call that pre two thousand. Um, of course, the professional era was only just starting. So, realistically, unless you were a genuine professional player, um, as in like a Super Rugby player, there was yeah. three opportunities in Australia that took in we'll call it a hundred players. Um, you know, not many players went to Europe and that sort of thing. Whereas now, you think. Guys will go to the French uh, Pro D2, uh, even the leagues beneath that, uh, certainly the championship in England. Uh, the MLRs are a big carrier of uh, shoot shield type players. But, yeah. you know, you, I think everyone in Sydney will have heard the guy who says, oh, I've got an offer to go and play in Germany or uh, Spain. Spain, Spain, and yeah. All these sorts of things. So, you know, you got everyone wants to be a pro. And um, so if someone offers you a tequila and somewhere to stay, they say I'm a pro, you know. I yeah. wake up and uh, you know they've given me a they've given me a three thousand dollar car to drive to training, and I'm a pro. And uh, so that takes a lot of players out of the competition, and uh, therefore it's become a younger competition. How, how has that changed, challenge wise, for head coaches? Because well, I've, I've some teams you almost have to rebuild every single year now. I'd say I'd say that's the thing that uh, is very different. It's interesting. I talked to one of the coaches yesterday um, or one of them called me up about someone and he said he was in his recruitment phase and um, he said, gee whiz, I can't believe it, you know, I'm being attacked by all the other clubs. And I said, well, you know, welcome to being, welcome to being successful. So the problem is that now is that the more successful you are, the more you get rated. So it's actually, success becomes, it's a great thing, but, it's a bit punishing for the coach because you used to be able to, many years ago, you could build and develop teams. Um, not so much now, I don't think. Um, you know, you're very much controlled by all forces outside you. And I think that's one of the things that um, 
probably, if you said, reflect on 2023. For me personally, um, you know, I've done it for a good while, coaching the student field longer than I anticipated um, due to family circumstances. And uh, the inability to have any control, over, we have some control, but um, realistically, if I said how did this season go, I thought you know, there was a number of teams that could win. Yeah. It was very, very even. Um, so I think there was potentially three or four genuine winners. Uh, probably when we played you guys and we had quite a good win, I felt at that stage that if we just got our team on the field, we'd been a bit short of ever having it on the field, a um, couple of key players, that we could win again. Um, now, the the situations that evolve for not only myself but other teams, I just feel, to be honest, quite strongly now that I just ridiculous. Um, so, like the Western Force taking a bunch of players just before the Western finals. Force situation, I mean, it's not nothing to do with the people. Simon Cron's a wonderful coach, you know, and a good guy. He's just doing what he needs to do for his organisation. But, you know, everyone talks about you when know, I mean, you get a little tired of hearing, you know, the shoot shield, the lifeblood of Australian rugby and that sort of thing. Like, it's literally a joke. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it's a circus. Let's be serious. The, 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 the game... The game's a lucky dip. The competition's a lucky dip where you hope you have the winning prize at the end, okay? Yeah. And and anything can happen. So for teams, you know, you would say um, if you look at – you can't have competitions that don't have parameters. And the shoot shot has no parameters. So yeah. you have a competition where, where you've got to play the last four games of the season. But then outside of that, the best players, someone can parachute – Australia's best player into a team in a final. They can take players from anywhere. Um, everybody goes, oh, that's just the way it is. And, you know, because we all understand that the professional teams own the player. So the clubs are just at the mercy of what happens above them. But I sort of felt that you know, in that circumstance, as I say, I'll say this on behalf of other clubs too, um, the competition, and Randwick won the competition I say fair and square. You know, there's a great effort. They've had a great year and deserving winners. But you're talking, you're talking one percent here. You know, I mean, that one percent could have flicked in any different way, to in a couple of different ways. So to see, to see on semi-final week, I I couldn't imagine this week who's playing this week. The uh, you know the storm play the the storm play the roosters. In the semi-final, couldn't imagine this week if on Tuesday, Freddie Fittler set up a state of origin camp and decided that Luke Carey was going to be in it and he couldn't play in the semi-final. People go, of course, that can't happen. And that stuff does happen. So that, to me, um, if you said why have I stepped away from head coaching, one, because I've done it for a good while, and, uh, you know, I think once you've done a few years at a club, you've done your best. Um, but I'm, I am in some ways a bit sick of the fact that you can't control winning that competition. Other people control it for you. What can you control? Oh, you, can control you can control a lot of things. Um, you can control your own 
uh, you know, the input that you, you're prepared to give. And so therefore every year, if you're successful, uh, you know you're going to lose players. Uh, the more successful you are, uh, the more players you potentially will lose, um, either to the Super Rugby franchises or, um, as I say, the MLR. I heard um, Jimmy just at the moment, I'm in a bit of a recess, just assessing what I might do. Um, yeah, we hear and see things around the traps and already a good number of, you know, took some from Hunter. They had a few boys who have gone to the MLR. Yeah. Uh, no doubt, yeah, there could be there could be ten players a year go to the MLR. Um, yeah, a few, a few push off to the Super Rugby, which is fantastic. It's fantastic, but um, realistically, guys going to the MLR and that doesn't do anything for Australian rugby. It does nothing. I don't think it does anything for them either. Just quietly, apart from a good life experience. You know. Yeah. Well. You know, we could we could delve down into that and 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 push on to you know academies and things like that in general. You know, that's a controversial thing to say, but realistically, I totally understand. I've spent a lot of time in professional rugby and love it. Like it's 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 good, and I understand exactly why they've got to do what they've got to do to a point. But um, it's slightly different overseas in the way things are set up. Because the nature of their game is and setup is different, whereas here we have a different fabric, and there is an element to say that one, there's too many franchises. That's the television thing. Yeah. Um, but even with that, when they bought in the extra franchises, I'll say it was to grow the game, it was to grow the money, it was to grow the amount of games that are on television so that they can sell. Yeah. yeah, and then. I don't think anyone uh, – not so I don't think anyone – at the time, they really destroyed the fabric of Super Rugby. I was lucky enough to coach in Super Rugby just for a couple of years when it was 12 and 14 teams, you know, so I suppose I saw even the expansion. Yeah. It was very simple comps. See, simplicity succeeds and and complexity just confuses people. Yes. So, um, the comp was very simple. You played 12 teams right away. clockwise, yeah. and then the next year you played them anti-clockwise, which means you played them home and away. So people could understand that. Yeah. Uh, when it went to 14, it was somewhat the same. And there was franchises and, and after then, that. Then, yeah. then, then, you know, then we started to, uh, I mean, marketing gurus. I mean, how many marketing gurus have you seen walk through the front door We've, you know, never seen a game of footy and try and tell you that if we call the team, you know, the cheaters or the, you know, yeah. or the, or the, or the, you know, whatever, you know, the blue blossoms that will sell more jerseys because they'll become a global, you know, become a global thing. So realistically, you know, the game would sort of divert, diversify by trying, by trying to make more teams and all those conferences, the game, Super Rugby became a circus too. Yeah, we had teams that were coming eighth, coming third. How could you possibly say, oh, we're, yeah, we're actually coming eighth on the table, we're third. Um, and I think that's one of the issues just in Australian rugby at the moment. It's a very complex one to, to fix. But you've got so many young fellas who come out of school and go into academies. Um, you know, they got the shirt on their back and realistically, they're not getting better. 
with so many players who come back from a couple of years in an academy. It's a horrible thing to say. Yeah. The, the, the franchises, they do a great job, but they just miss one thing, that they don't have a competition for them to play in. And people get better by playing and competing. Uh, they don't get better by training. You can train someone forever and ever, but it doesn't bring in the match circumstances and the invisible factors that matches bring. Um, you know, and I could give a couple of great examples through the competition of guys who just played rugby. They're a combination of both things. Um, certainly, Black Shops, Black Shops, one of them. Incredible, yep. incredible. Yeah, yep. if I said this year. Um, yeah, one of my boys, Thomas Markle, was, you know, he was just maybe lacking a bit of confidence, you know, not a perfect player, but, you know, can play. Just ultimately, once we go to Thomas, just some continuous game time and, uh, you know, a certain challenge and parameters and things like that, he uh, just got better and better and yep. got, you know, gained the confidence he needed. And um, and that's not the academy spot. They don't, they don't, have, they don't have the games for them. Um, and, I'm, and I'm, it's a bit like now, mate. You know, if we say the shoot shield actually has relevance um, in its own way, um, I wonder if we did a straw poll in rugby at the moment and said who really improved out of the tour to South Africa by the Western Force and who won the series. Yeah. So if you're not accountable to anyone, then you're not accountable to get better either. Yeah. So you might be accountable to the coaches, you know, in the Western Force and that sort of thing. But the bottom line is the world's not watching you. You know what I mean? Even if you play a shoot shield game and you go down to and – and I'm not trying to say shoot shield is just what it is. It's just club footy. Um, but if you're playing in the semi-final, you know, um, Randwick's playing Gordon and Coogee Oval, there's a few thousand people there. But the bottom is bottom line is there might be a few thousand people there, but there's 30,000 people I know the result. And 30,000 people tell another three years, 100,000 people know what happened. You know, if you look at the uh, grand final, for instance, Jude Gibbs, I mean, what a great player. I thought he was like the rookie of the year. Whenever I watched, he never missed never missed a goal. Like, such a great goal kicker, played very, very well. And uh, anyway, under the pressure, he misses a goal. No big deal. Goal kickers can miss a goal. Yes. But, you think of the ramifications and that sort of thing, and that poor young fella, how he feels, and the, but the learning and pressures and various things he has to go through, that's that's real. How how do we help guys deal with pressure? What have you seen? Like you've been doing this a while now. I I feel like, and I hate to say, sound like I'm getting old, but I feel like the players now are different from when I played. Just my sense. There's a lot more pressure, expectation. Every shoot shield game is is on stand now. There's a lot more exposure. It's an incredibly popular competition. As you said, there's professional teams from all over the world watching the shoot shield now. How do you how do you see our role in helping young players deal with pressure? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a it's a different world, isn't it? Um, I have a theory that. Even Australia in sport generally lost its advantage as the iPhone came in. So the iPhone changed everything. The internet changed everything. Australia was an isolated country where we were a little bit uh, rough and ready. Yep. 
and uh, a bit isolated. So therefore, we were incredibly innovative. We didn't really care so much for what the rest of the world did. But as soon as the iPhone came, the world became this big and everything that we did also became accessible. So the great advantage for Australians and Australian rugby was that, you know, we had rugby league here and all, all these other contact games. So whether it was kicking the ball or, you know, from an AFL side of things, maybe the rugby league defence and various things like McQueen, we brought in John Muggleton, didn't he, 25 years ago. That was a very innovative thing to do. I remember when McQueen went on camp up to Caloundra or somewhere up there and the people in the world were like, wow, you know, look, this is like off the off the chart. Like what an innovative thing to do, you know, yeah. defence coaches and that sort of thing. But if you just take it back, I'm a very natural gut feel sort of person and I just think how was I taught to play the game? As a kid bought in the West, you know, we just had, had a footy, that's, that's it. footy, yeah. And uh, – just, you know, the front yard was tricking them and the backyard was Lord's sort of thing. And it was simple. Me and my brother, you just went out the front and you just kicked the ball within those parameters, just just relentlessly, just never stopped. And now if the ball went through the front window or, you know, cracked a tile on the roof, you know, you got a smack on the bum and, you know, you learned to kick it properly. If it went sideways, you didn't ask someone how to, how to do it. You just, you just learned yourself. So you had this intrinsic instinctive learning so you understood the game then you there's not much wasn't there wasn't the options there are in life today so you know watching the footy was something that you never miss yeah. so you just learnt the game by watching thousands and thousands of matches um so i think that what happened to the young Australian guy, once the iPhone came, is instead of going out in the backyard and kicking the footy, and you know we've got parks and space and going to the beach or that sort of thing, um, yeah, kids sell on their iPhone. They do the same thing as the kid who, where the sun goes down at four o'clock in England. Um, it, it lost their advantage. We lost our advantage That's to a point. point, and uh, and then all of a sudden, um, you know, again, Australia now to a point. We are a bit uh, for it, to be fair. A lot, of, a lot of you know, a lot of the uh, things where we're pushing forward in life. But you know, we do try to be like we're trying to be like everyone else because that's all we read about. So why don't we try and be like them and and uh, maybe even better than them, sort of thing. So you know, a lot of our uh, roughness and toughness and innovation and uh, flair and those sorts of things seem to have just been. Out yeah, yeah, but did but helping the kids today, do we have a role to play in helping them deal with that as coaches? Oh, yeah, you have to because you know they they live in a live in a world of instant gratification and 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 they get so they get so um, well up and down about all the things that happen because life life doesn't have that many downs for them. They think it does, but it doesn't. But but it also has pressures that we didn't have to deal with, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Like, people get jobs now and, um, you know, you see, like, they're getting to 24, 25 years old and, you know, very high-pressure jobs where I, I knew guys who were really successful guys and back in the 80s, 90s, everyone just sort of finished work at 5 o'clock, roughly, roughly, up us five and you went to training. But, you know, people have to work back to 7.30 and 8 and, you know, there's big deals to be done and if you don't do it, then 
you're out and someone else is in. So I guess people work under different pressures now. Life's different. Um, I suppose it's a bit more of a 24-7 uh, existence. The world's online all the time. There's always someone calling you, yeah, contacting you. Um, and as I say, if you just go back to the the internet, like you think of the social the social media situation, I guess the young people, um, what they're living is that they're living the pressures of social media because whilst, you know, I'm very much on social media, of course, because, you know, reasonably modern, I don't, I don't sit and watch Instagram and that all, all day, you know. Or, yeah. Um, but all these things are being posted everywhere, so I suppose they're feeling the pressures of success and failure and uh, wanting to get where they get. I've, I've had this thought recently of just uh, how awesome it would be to succeed without telling everyone that you're succeeding. You know what I mean? Like, I've lost all this weight, but you don't have to tell everyone. You just fucking do it without sharing it to the world. It's, you know what I mean? And I feel like oh, you have to – I feel like it's, it's encouraged to share every little thing now. It's just, I find it astonishing. It's sort of fun, like because I mean, I'm, um, you know, mature age. I'll say that now, and and of course, yeah, you think you feel young. Um, you know, I've sort of act like a child, so um, yeah, you've got to be modern. Yeah, you know, I've got, I've got, you know. Fifty WhatsApp groups and yeah, you know, hundreds of messages. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't message and communicate more. But I refuse to like. I make one post a year on Facebook. I refuse to post on Facebook. You know what I mean? I literally laugh my head off at people advertising themselves. Like it's like it's just a networkathon, you know. But I can also see the advantages of it, of course. But yeah. it's just, so, it's just so funny. Everyone goes on a holiday and posts all their photos, and it's like, you know. So I, I. I'll read Facebook to keep because you know, it does allow you to keep up with things, and it, it is interesting. But uh, it's just so much pressure on people. You know, someone's having a having a whiz bang fifty grand holiday. So if you're on a if you're on a twenty grand one, which is fantastic, yours is yours is second best by a long way. It's, yeah, yeah. I've looked nearly everyone I know is in Europe at the moment. I'm going. What are they doing different that I'm? I'm doing. I know what they're doing different. I'm trying to. I'm trying to be a rugby coach. <laughs> Hey, um, one, th one thing I wanted to talk to you about, and it's something that I've found very interesting, obviously jumping into coaching in the last couple of years, but the, the perception from my generation, my generation, it's like five years ago, is that it's a two-night-a-week gig, you know, play the game on Saturday, and that's it. It's a part-time gig, being a coach. Can you, can you maybe give some insight, one, to dispel that bullshit, and two... Uh, how has it changed since you've started coaching? Was it genuinely two nights a week and a Saturday back when you started? Yeah, well, I, I started. I, I finished. I finished playing in uh, two thousand. So I played for as long as I could. Um, a bit too long, um, and then not lucky enough to get asked to be coach at West Harbour. They were right down. It was a club I'd played for, but ultimately went back there. They were right down the bottom, and at that stage, I was a small builder. Yeah, just maybe me and an apprentice and a little business that, you know, we just renovate houses or maybe build the occasional new one, um, extensions, etc. So I definitely used to do that full time um, and fit in your work um, 
fit in your footy work. It was probably Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, but you're putting a lot of extra time naturally. That quickly evolved um, as I moved on to Manly. I, pro- I probably used to take Mondays off uh, then, but I still had a business. And I had young kids and all that sort of thing. You weren't getting you know, paid a fortune. Um but certainly, as professionalism went on, the players' expectations and the club's expectations, it's just a natural force that everyone expected the coach to be professional. And to a point, the coaches started getting paid a bit more. You know, it's very, there's, varying, there's varying amounts you get paid around Sydney, I'm told right here, for the coaches. But if we just talk about the average shoot shield coach, it's very hard to live on what you get paid. Um, but, you know, it's, you appreciate what you get. It's a privilege to, to wake up and be a footy coach in the morning, but then people just go, oh, well, wouldn't it be great to be a footy coach? And if I told you what, you know, if I told you what, you know, what you want to get yourself in for, if you want to be successful, then uh, there's not many people who want to do it. So, you know, if you want to know a week is that you sort of go, Mon- you know, Monday is uh, – Mondays, you know, we'll call it review and uh, getting through all the maybe the stats and reviewing the game, feedback to players. Uh, Monday night, Monday night, uh, get together in whatever way most clubs would do something. That'd be the, the first night, whether you're know, reviewing the game, gym session, etc. Maybe some form of training in some cases. Um, so that usually would finish about half past eight, and then in in season. Last year in the last year when the rain was on, bit of a, a bit of a trouble troubled time at the Gordon Club. Uh, every you know, club, I think. Every club. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I get three to four hundred WhatsApp messages a day. WhatsApp and text messages a day. That's not including emails or calls. Three to four hundred. Right? It's it's relentless, you know. Then you, you sort of get home by bus day on Monday night. Um, you know, have something to eat, start going through. You know, a lot of a lot of uh, emails. Tuesday is always the main day. We always say that. Yeah, you know, maybe you've, you've got to look at the other team. You've got to prepare for training that night. You've got um, you've got four grades where you've got coaches. Everyone's at work, so you've you've basically got a hundred employees who are randomly, you know, if someone's someone's dog's got a you know broken leg, they've got to go to the vet. They're wondering if you can work out, you know, to uh, help them with that. Um, you know, numerous people not training, coaches who can, can't be there, etc. So I don't understand that you're the only paid person. So therefore, you've got, you've got people who can't be full-time and the only way to even communicate with them is through all these WhatsApp groups. It's like a full-time job trying to communicate for the poor old coaches. Um, so Tuesdays, I'd say, is a very busy day, but we'll call that the, that's the, that's the big day in most people's preparation. Say Wednesday is a bit of a better day. Um, you know, tends to uh, I'd spend about half of Wednesday, maybe getting more into the uh, you know, I sell the cerebral side of things, <laughs> uh, the dynamics of the game. Uh, you might be able to go and do some out external work. So it depends if you've got external work to do, or if you need to earn x, x amount of money. I, I'm, I'm a a renovator by trade, um, so sometimes I can go and do a bit of that on a on a Wednesday. Might finish at one o'clock, then come home and do four hours. Um, except at the end of the season, I'll go literally full full time. Thursday is just a full day; uh, it's training day, and uh, people would say, "What do you what do you do that day?" But yeah, you, 
players these days require good game plans and and uh, they like a lot of face-to-face uh, time, sort of trying to uh, prepare them for games. They all deserve their bit of time. Um, a lot of things to do within the club. I'd say Friday can be a day where there's less to do. Personally, I like to do things in a certain way and uh, there's a certain part of the day where I like to get into your own space to prepare for it. But if Friday, you could say, is, 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 a, is, a, is a down day. The problem is that, as I say, if you're in business, it's the day before the result. You live result every single week. And that's the difference between sport and business. People say sports like business. Sports nothing like business. I've been in business for my whole life, and I don't. I don't. Uh, I'm not nervous every Friday. Well, n- not everyone thinks that they can be a coach as well. Not everyone thinks that they could be a business person, but nearly everyone thinks that they know more than the coach. Yeah. So Saturday, obviously, is just, it's just game day, result day. So uh, you know, you you pretty much go from early till late. Uh, Sunday, I'd probably spend till noon. Talking to uh, people on the board or other coaches, essentially six and a half days a week. It goes from the time you wake up till about 11 o'clock at night, whenever you go to bed. I try and stop at 11 and then try and read something for an hour and fall into bed about midnight. So I'd say to uh, anyone who wanted to be a coach, if you if you don't think you're going to work, I don't know, if you don't think you're going to work an extraordinary amount of hours, then don't do it. Yeah, um, I'd, I'd say it's the same as an assistant, to be honest. If you're going to if you're going to coach in the shoot shield, you've probably got to do some external work potentially to to allow yourself to live a decent life. So it's a pretty busy life. So you you've coached professionally. You've also coached in the shoot shield. I, as someone that's only ever been an assistant coach in the shoot shield, but looking at it. Uh, what's harder? The shoot shield. The shoot shield is a very good grounding, but it's very difficult because you have to do everything. Um, I don't know if there's any anything that's harder. Yeah, you know, I really like. I really love coaching in professional footy. Of course, a lot more external pressure in in in, in, in there's there's much more public pressure because more people watch it. Um, you know, back God. Back in the day when rugby was uh, was flying, yeah, I was probably in pro footy at, at a good in, at, at a good time. There was a lot. Yeah, I was, it was the biggest. The Waratahs were the biggest team in town, bigger than any of the rugby league teams, all that sort of thing. So there's a lot of press pressure. But the great thing in pro rugby, I was only ever the assistant coach. You just play your role. So if someone breaks their leg, there's a doctor there. You know, there's someone who can send them for scans. There's physios and, you know, within a day or two, you or a day, you, you know the person's broken their leg, they'll be back in eight weeks and this is the plan and et cetera, et cetera. If someone doesn't come to training, you know, a couple of times, maybe they're going to lose their contract, but you've got, you know, $100,000, $500,000 to replace that player. It's, it's, a, it's a dedicated search yes. sort of thing for around the world for the, for the replacement, whereas... You know, shoot is like small business. It's um, it's like having a little building company. You know, you're a carpenter, but of course you've got to know how to do a bit of bricklaying and uh, you know maybe patch up a bit of gyp rocking and paint and all that sort of thing. Because um, you know, there's lots of things happening all the time. So you know, to be in the shoot shield, yeah, you recruit, you retain. Um, 
players and coaches. You know, you're the defence coach, you're the, the potentially the attack coach, um, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, you have to empathise, care, and uh, man manage a multitude of, of, of things. Whereas in pro footy, you have to do all those things, but you have, you have a much more specific role, and you have the resources around you. You know, tremendous business side of things. Uh, you have the uh, we all say this, you know, the door's always open in pro footy and there's always a football. Um, whereas in Shoot Shield, sometimes we're literally waiting for the key to open the door to see if there's a footy inside. And sometimes there's not. Or to turn the lights on at training. That sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it changes. There's no, there's, so there's no, yeah, there's no uh, way... Is, is is full on, but I think you just I think you can just concentrate more so on what you are supposed to do, um, and a lot more. There's a lot more help and assistance, albeit that you deal with more public pressure. Yeah. Matt, I wanted to I wanted to ask you about innovation and looking for other ideas and trying things. Something that I've seen is that people tend to copy what other teams are doing or what other successful teams are doing. Like I, I, I reckon quite a few teams copied uni's game model for the last couple of years rather than looking at other things that they can do to maybe push ahead. Cause I've got a bit of a theory that if you do the same thing as everyone else, you're going to get the same results. What's your view on innovation and trying things and how important is that? Yeah, no, I think, you just got to be yourself. The biggest thing is you got to be, yeah, you know, be is to be yourself. Um, and you've got to try and find something that's unique within the team, the club, the player. The unique bit is the bit that the other people can't stop. So, so if you do the things the same as everyone else, then it's just a race. Instead, Talk about the you know if you look if you look at the most commonly used play in the game it's the blocker players and you know the play out the back you know and you, let's just say roughly I couldn't be certain of this but I'm just going to credit Craig Bellamy with being the guy who sort of seemed to be the guy who uh, brought that in you know 20 years ago and, and of course the Storm did it better than everyone else they may not do it better than everyone else now but they did and so for a fair while everyone in the world started to do the the blocker play didn't they. Yeah. Ultimately, everyone in the rugby league still does. They still do the same thing. That's just a race to um, see who does it better. You know, it's a you know the high ball. Like it's becomes dull. South Africa won the last World Cup. You know because you know death by a thousand cuts and uh, the high ball. There's a good reason for them doing. It. I, know, I know why they do it. Um, but of course, everyone else now, you know, you, you just can't stop number nine's kicking the ball in the air every team yeah. because that's seen as the way to win. I'm going to make a bet that because George Ford kicked three field goals the other day, you watch how many field goals get kicked in this World Cup. And then if they do, that everyone will start going, gee, and kick field goals. And that's how you put pressure on other teams. You go, well, that's only about 40 years old, that idea. Um, you know what I mean? Yes. Um, so. Yeah, I think it's really important to be unique. Like, I mean, 
when I came into the uh, into coaching, I had that feeling of trying to do something different, um, and it sort of works for you, but also works against you. You got to be Sorry. careful of that. And so, this is a this is a difficult thing to talk about. But of course, people don't necessarily like. So, if you want to progress, you've got to be very very careful. Yes. Of stepping outside the system. So I made a fatal mistake like Eddie Jones, like clearly one of the great coaches of the world. Doesn't matter what anyone thinks about Eddie, you know. He was a competitive bloke, he used to play for Randwick. I was a Parramatta player in the days we yeah, everyone used to butt heads and great clashes. They won more than us, but we were lucky enough to upend them a few times, you know. So you saw Randwick and and para rivalry, all that sort of thing. So when Eddie was the Australian coach. Obviously, uh, he'd been the Brumbies coach and the Australian coach. And when I went to the Waratahs, as in 2005, um, there was nothing. I think Australian rugby was played in a certain way and it had been played very, very well. And 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 uh, Eddie had probably been the architect of, you know, putting the game into that way with Gregan and Larkin. You know, I think everyone understands how the game was played. But it was somewhat structured in a certain way. And, and in my opinion... I went to the Waratahs, they were coming 10th or something like that. They just needed to change the way they thought yeah. and do things. So by chance, I came in and I thought I'd just be told, you know, what we were going to do. But luckily, Ewan gave me pretty good uh, license and said, you know, so what are you going to bring sort of thing? Next thing I said, oh, I just think we do it this way. We need to change the way the game's played. I didn't bring that in because I was against Eddie or anything, or I thought I was smarter or anything. I just thought the Waratahs have got to change the way they play. We've got to change the way the game's played in Australia because, again, it's just this race, everyone playing the same way and yeah. uh, no one moving forward. So yeah, we sort of changed to a more, uh, we'll call it, you know, instinctive, a slightly more instinctive framework, that sort of thing, which, to be fair... I like, I like what they're trying to do now. Well, <laughs> it wasn't quite like... It is now. I'm not. I'm not. That's not for me to you know say what they're trying to do now. But let's just say we changed a little bit. And it was quite funny. The next morning, you and said, "Well, you're going to go and present." And I said, "Well, the thing is, we have to put Eddie's playbook to the side a bit." But at that particular meeting, it was quite interesting. A lot of the more process-driven guys, who yeah, some of the forwards, you know, famous players, you know, Dave Lyons and. Dan Vickerman, God rest his soul, and all these sorts of things. When I said we were going to change, they sort of raced into the, the office and they were worried, you know, because Eddie was going to be get stuck into them and, and say they needed to stick to the script, I think. And, of course, the Matt Rogers and the more freewheeling players like Lottie the Kiri, they were cheering up the back of the meeting. And um, anyway, we went on with things. And as I said, there was nothing to do with, there was nothing to do with uh, changing the script of the national coach, it was, but in retrospect, it wasn't the smartest thing that I did from a political point of view because I remember, I think, I think I could be wrong, but the next morning we went in and, yeah, Eddie was on the phone to you and giving him a bit of a bashing about uh, his assistant coach and that sort of thing. But, look, we ended up doing pretty well. And the point is then we kept moving that forward into um, the situation. I don't know if it's the year after we started to go, no numbers on jerseys. People could play 
freely and then the, the IRB finished that. But, look, you've got to – to me, you've got to stimulate the player. Like, when I coached, all I wanted to do when I was a player is you had some coaches were a bit dull and everyone had their favourite coach. I always remember a couple of the favourite coaches you had or the most successful – you just always remembered something different they did or something stimulating. So extraordinary performance comes from creating an extraordinary experience. So you've got to create something different, you know, something that people remember. Like for me, um, you can't keep, like it's very hard to keep bringing things, but for me, I'm always trying to do something that's slightly different. How do you do that or how do you find that whilst being true to yourself? Well, you've got to see, I'm, I'm very much with you that um, I'm really, it annoys me a bit, like the whole copy-paste, uh, copy-and-paste coaching, you can't get away from it. I mean, we everybody copies and pastes. There's no doubt. We all learn from, from various sources um so it's not that but there's too many coaches there's too many coaches and there's too many of them that have gone look are a long way up in the game who just just everything is just being taken from other people yeah. and the thing is that i've literally been to sessions watch watch guys do things um and they don't actually understand what they're doing. They don't actually understand what they're teaching. They do it very well. Like they can coach the session really well. And then when you ask them, you can tell they don't actually know the fabric of what they're coaching. Yeah. And that to me is what I call copy and paste coaching. So I think you've got to have something, even if it's even if even if there's twenty percent of you. And that's probably reality. I think we all we all do the same thing. Like it's impossible not to. Yeah. A lot of a lot of the game is just the game. We, we can't you can't reinvent everything. But I think it's important to have something about you that you know is a little bit unique or an ability to change. Um, because the thing that's yours and the thing that's unique is the thing that you intrinsically understand. Whereas trying to do something that someone else puts in place, very hard to really know the detail and, 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 and what, you know, what, what it's really about. I'm talking about complex type of things. You can't just, you can't just coach like Eddie Jones. Yeah. Only Eddie Jones can coach like Eddie Jones. Yeah. That's, that's how I feel. One thing I've found very interesting about coaching is, and you kind of alluded to it before, but You've got to balance getting results because you only get jobs if you you only keep your job if you get results. But sometimes the game you you go in at a team and they need to evolve their game or change. So how do you balance? And and sometimes when you're changing, there's a decrease in the results because guys are learning, you know, new habits or new game model or just changing. So there's from what I've seen, I hope I'm making sense. How how do you balance that? Or do you need to get to a point in your career where at some point you go, I'm not explaining it well, but how do you balance getting results with improving a team? Well, 
I think I've worded that terribly. But... No, I I know what you mean. Look, I don't know if I don't don't know if I'll answer the question right. I'm I'm definitely results driven. There's no people can talk about what they want. Like people, it's like there's two there's two sides of coaching. If you want to be a development coach, then you know, you, you go into the you go and be an academy coach or school coach or something like that. I actually have a have a feeling that that's a problem as well within the game. Yeah, elaborate, elaborate on that one. Well, if you're trying to develop, if we just said this in Australia. So I'll say there's always there's always good players. There's always good players. Just like there's always intelligent people. It's never ending. A certain percentage of people are intelligent and you know, mid-range and, and probably down the bottom. And likewise, there's always talent. So if you wanted to have your kid well educated, what would you see as the most important thing to do? You'd probably hope that the person who was the teacher was going to be pretty good. If we looked at it pretty basically, keep it simple. Great teacher, most likely you'll get the best out of the students. So therefore, I don't know which are the best schools, but, you know, people send their kids to the best schools because the program's you know, set up to get the best out of their kids. You assume yes. they try and have good teachers, that sort of thing. Um, so, therefore, the same priority, you would think, should be applied. That if you want to get the best results, that you must have the best coaches. Yes. Okay? Yes. Yes. And so you're not, getting, you're not so, getting that. You're well, not getting that always. Sometimes you are. Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes you are. It's not for it's not, I say it's not for me. It's not for anybody to say. But yes. if, I, if we had a straw poll over the last 15 years or whatever, if we look at Australian rugby, because everyone's, everyone's you know, weaving about Australian rugby and that sort of thing, well, then it makes common sense that if you've got five professional franchises and they've got three or four coaches, and you'd expect that the best 20 coaches in Australia would have to be in those places. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You'd expect that the academies, they're teaching the best young players in the in the game. Do you... It would make, it would make common sense that the next best coaches have to be or would be advantageous for the next best coaches to be teaching those guys. I think it's fair to say that that's not the case in Australia. Yeah. Um, so therefore, the model in Australia is very just, flawed. <laughs> I don't know if it's flawed, but, but it's, it's like could be improved. Well, how do you how, how, how do people get there? See. You just, you just look at you just got to look at other sports and things like that you survive in the NRL if you lose you can't no. it's proven 
Yes. You wouldn't go seven or eight games before you're gone. You know what I mean? Or you're in trouble. That's we've got we've got people super rugby who have got records of twenty five and thirty percent over over years and they're on three year contracts. So people will go, Oh, you know, that's that's you know, oh that's a terrible thing to say. What's so terrible about it? Who is gonna say it? Yeah. When will someone stand up and actually just admit that the game doesn't reward the best people? And that's part of us being in a very small world here. See, the less jobs you have, the more they're coveted. And and they and unfortunately, because the game hasn't been run from a central control at the top. You could you could you could go back through so many situations and 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 give on and say, well, what about when so and so got appointed and he appointed the next person? Oh, you, usually, of course, that you you appoint someone you know, is someone you feel comfortable with. Yes, yes. Not yes. not necessarily person who uh, will definitively create success. Yes, that's an that's an interesting part of the coaching world. That I've only recently observed. Is it the same overseas? Well, it depends where you it's go. Different, it's different. It's different. It's different. It's slightly different overseas. Um, it's slightly different overseas because there's more opportunities. So, if you said in Australia, see, if you go to if you go to England and Ireland and Scotland, you'd fit all them. All those countries would fit in New South Wales. Yes. So. You know, between the Pro 14 and English Premiership, you've got 26 professional teams. You've got 14 in France, and then you've got the ones beneath. So, yeah, there's there's there's, there's 60 professional teams. So, if Brisbane Brothers and you know Queensland Uni and you know Souths and Randwick and Gordon and Manly and all those, if, if they're all professional teams, then everyone have a everyone have a job. Yeah, um, it'd be slightly different. So, it's different. It's different in that way. Um, the hard bit in Australia, I mean, incredibly hard to get to get to uh, the top in in a place, Australia, New Zealand, those sorts of places. Um, obviously, because just a, just a few opportunities, and uh, I think to a point, um, it's quite. Mate, um. You kind of talked about it with the Eddie Jones thing, but there's a question I always like to ask about your relationship with failure. And I think certainly I've noticed that it's an integral part of coaching. You make mistakes, you learn from it, you you adjust. Have you got any personal favorite failures that you can recall that set you up for later success? Um, it was my relationship with failure. Uh, it's not 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 good. Um, God, I, I I need to get better. I needed to get I need to get better at uh, dealing with failure. I think I'm a gracious loser. Like I mean, I don't you don't like to be. Uh, yeah, you always always be gracious. In... You're definitely a gracious winner. I'll put. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, but, yeah, it's easy to be gracious when you win. Yeah. Um, but you know, you got to you got to. Uh, Hating losing and being gracious is two different things. 
Um, you know, I detest, I detest losing, and I've, and I don't get, I've not gotten that, that I've not gotten better at it, uh, that much better. I've gotten better, but yeah, so my yeah, relationship with failure is not great. But look, I describe myself, um, you know, I've, had, I've lost more than most people have had careers matches. Yes, I've lost yes. more games than most people have had careers. So I've lost. Probably, I had to do an article for a guy the other day who told me that the figures or something. Um, I've lost playing and coaching. I've probably lost 240 games. So more than I played in my career. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, from from at at every level of the game, it was, you know, test suit, rugby or club, whatever. Um, But I'm lucky, you know, I've won seventy plus percent of them, so I've won five hundred and sixty or eighty or something. He said, "So that's the only thing that keeps." Um, I've had a lot of failures. I suppose my whole life came was a kid from the west. Uh, you know, four brothers. We came from a uh, non-rugby league area, so it was a real battle in a way. Didn't think it was at the time, but it was. Uh, so it was a great grounding in how to get better, you know, because to come from a place and then ultimately to be the first ones at Parramatta to, to beat the Rambic teams that were famous in those days. So um, I learned about success early or how to how to get to that point. So I think when I became a coach, I naturally gravitated, all the teams gravitated to me. I don't know how that worked, but as I say, West Harbour was my first coaching job. They were right down the bottom. We got them into the top four uh, immediately. And then Manly, I think they were 10th. We got them there. I went to the Waratahs. They were 10th. We got – but the thing I've got to say is along that along that trail, so much winning, but I kept falling short of actually winning the title. Well, teams that are 10th and 12th don't necessarily win the title. So the highest team I ever took over was 7th. That was Gordon. We, ended up, we won the title but um, with DC, of course. Um so I suppose a long-winded way of saying my relationship with failure is I've failed. Like I think in the shoot shield, I've lost six qualifying grand final. We already called six grand final qualifiers. Yeah, um, you know, I've been to the finals twelve times, twelve out of twelve, I think. But um, you know, I know what failure is. I've lost super, I've lost every competition in the world. Yeah, but but alternatively, you go, I've won so much to get to that point. So my relationship with failure is many and varied. Um, And some of those things really, you know, they do really sting you. And so um, I think as I get older and more mature, um, you know, it's so hard to win. Like if you look at the great coaches, there's certain circumstances, and sometimes a champion comes along, and there can be a few. There can be a few great coaches, and maybe one guy gets, you know, the the, uh, the Andrew Johns or the that type of player who can turn that into a, a an era of success. So you do need very, very good players. Um, but I think for all coaches, if you can get your team consistently in the frame, if you can be in that top four, it's like if you're a chance to contend to win. And you can do that relentlessly. Um, you, you, you're pretty successful because trying to actually win the championship, if you based it on that, 
then there's not many successful coaches in the world. Yes. Um, you know, like Bellamy's the best in rugby league. You know, he's had six minus two, but we'll call it six out of 21 or two years. Yeah. Uh, and that's unbelievable, you know. Um, you know, Bennett is is, is is fantastic, you know. Eddie Jones is, you know, reportedly one of the best coaches. But, I mean, if you take out different, uh, you know, and I call it extended competitions too, because a lot of people have won things where you like if you win to win the even to win a Six Nations, bloody good effort. Yes, it's a five. It's a five game competition where one game's a gimme. So you got to win four games. You can win those things. Trying to win 20, 20 plus week competitions, they're very very hard to win. And yes. uh, you know you can you see many of the great coaches could you coach for 10, 12 years. You, you might come up once once or twice if you're lucky. Yeah, and uh, so it's a good yeah, think it's a good way of thinking. My, you've got to, you've got to, if you if you want to look at the great coaches, you just look at the people who have their team in the frame all the time and whose teams get better. Yeah, I love it. because if you only if you only look at who wins the cup, of course that's a great thing. Like you know, I think there's some great coaches around who are very very good. If you give them a team. They'd be very, very good at um, making sure that team, you know, if you if you had a team capable of winning the competition, um, not capable. Say you've got a team that's you know twenty percent better than the opposition. Some coach that that's a skill as well. There's there's many coaches who are good at making sure they do. So winning the whole thing is just so difficult. And I've uh, I certainly questioned myself. I've gone round and round and round in circles trying to think. You know, did I stuff something up at the at the wrong? And no doubt you do sometimes. But I've seen the time, the time that uh, the times that I've won. Um, sometimes look at the times I've lost and won and think, what did you do different? There's not that much difference. Mate, um, mate we'll, we'll, I'm conscious of your time. Just a couple of rapid oh, fire. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah right, I'm not worried. Then I'll get you out of here. I feel like we could talk for hours, and we got to do a, a round two at some stage. Uh, Mate, do you, do you do much reading? Uh, I read. I, I read. I'm not a great reader of of long books. You know, I'm, I'm not a fast reader. I never was. I think I read two novels when I was at school. Um, but I read. I read every day for twenty minutes yep. or something. But I only read very specific things. Yeah, um, such as. I only. I only. I only <laughs> I really, I, I only read like, like key key. I love read. I love reading. Uh, see, sometimes sometimes it can just be even in the paper. But I love, I love um, stories on people. I love studying uh, success, self help. I suppose, but I'm not a great podcast. I don't have time for podcasts. Um, and in reading, when I lived overseas, I used to live overseas and uh, that sort of thing. But didn't matter wherever I go, I only ever have I only ever have ten. There's only ten books in my house. Yeah, right. Uh, why, is that, why is that? Just get you do reread them. I always, have, always have the top ten. I always have my top ten books, and some of those books they never leave, and I take them everywhere I go. Um, but when I say do I read? Um, I have some people that I admired and, and learnt off, I think. 
Um, and those books, some of those books I've read 10 times. So, Do, you, I, do you mind sharing some of those books? Oh, my God, I was a great – when I was young, um, I was from a rugby league area. My brother was played for the Eagles and Jack Gibson was his coach. So I used to go down, not all the time, but quite a bit just to watch them train. I try and hang by the fence and near uh, Jack and Ron Massey, that sort of stuff, when I was a little nipper. Yeah. And uh, that sort of fascinated me because Gibson was a bit of an innovator in his time. So when I got to be a player and I uh, would have loved to have been an international player like my brothers and that, but uh, I suppose I was always fascinated to learn um, the bit, you know, what, what's, what, what, what's the edge, that sort of thing. So um, when I got to a bit of an old bit of a uh, mature age as a player, um, I might have bought Jack's book, you know, because he'd been as a kid, the guy, you know. So that sort of uh, amused me. Yeah. It was an interesting book. Yeah. Any, any course, other books? Any other books? Yeah, you that Wayne, Wayne, see, Wayne Bennett was Gibson's protege. So then I spent a lot of time, a lot, a lot of time studying Wayne Bennett, you know, 20 years ago. Um, yeah. Bellamy was Bennett's um, successor. So I suppose... I really did spend a lot of time and I could relate to those sorts of things. I just, just the ruthless discipline um, and work ethic of those guys and passion for the game, man management and things like that. I think I learned a lot from reading those things and, and then observing and, uh, you know, I used to go and observe them and, and try and uh, take something from them. Uh, and then outside of that, I went to very different things. So I always go to, I always go to different things. So, I was lucky to spend time uh, many years ago when I worked at Waratahs with Jose Mourinho, the soccer coach. So I was fascinated with Mourinho. How, how was that experience? Yeah, very good. Um, so Mourinho was um, the special one in his time. He might have fallen off the perch a bit now, but it, at the time, incredible, incredibly different. Uh, he had a lot of things. When you read, you know, when you read and you somehow feel that what you're reading is what you do, you know, yes. it's just, it was this funny little thing he said, he just he has a little little uh, pad in his back pocket and a pen, and he just writes down notes till half time. And when I was reading the thing, I thought, "Gee, exactly what I do." And he go, "Wow, if he does it, I must be doing something." Yeah, yeah. Never write anything down in the second half because it doesn't matter. Um, but I got to, uh, I got to uh, that sort of thing. I, I guess I went to Barcelona, uh, learnt their methods, that sort of thing. Pep Guardiola and uh, a few others. I was, bloody, and I was bloody hell. fascinated with, um, see, I think a lot of things are just about the way you think. People are way too technical in the game. Like there's plenty of people who can teach technical parts of the game, but you've got to be able to inspire and motivate and challenge. And so most things are about changing the way people think. And um, so I spent a lot of time was young studying horse trainers. Oh yeah. So so uh I would have read Bart Cummings way ten times. Okay. Yeah. And, I'll and have to so, check that one out. Yeah. Um so there's a lot of things in that, but see happy horse, good result. But uh what makes a happy horse? So because yeah. the horse can't talk. That's interesting. That's mm. interesting. Hey so, um do you what's something you used to be sure about that you've now changed your mind on? Can be any any area of life, coaching, rugby, wherever you want to take it. Oh, 
I don't know. What, what do I used to be sure about? I don't, I don't know the I don't know the answer. Well, I, I, don't, I, I might stop asking that question because I um, ask it. Well, I used to be. I, I okay. Then I, I'd say I used to be. I used to think that the only thing that mattered was winning. And sadly, in Australian rugby, I don't necessarily think that anymore. I think the game got away from that, and and people will always go, oh, "It's about development." You know what? It's. Uh, I remember Alex Ferguson said went into a conference in business, and uh, they said to him, you know, to, to give his spiel. And he said, look, I just want to leave you for a few minutes. Why don't you put up on the board all the things that are important? And so, of course, they made this big org chart and there was lines and boxes everywhere. You know, there's 50 things on the on the table, you know, all the areas. There was the sales and the marketing and this and that. And, you know, he, and he came in and he just got, a, he got his rubber or his uh, duster and he just cleaned the whole board off and he just left three things in the middle and then he rubbed out. He rubbed out the uh, names in the middle of that. He said, guys, he was a pretty successful guy. Not that I knew him, but he was incredibly successful. Um, he says, only three things that matter. And I never forgot this. There's only three things that matter. He said, at Manchester United, he said, there's an academy. He said, I love those boys. So I know all their names because they're professionals and they come to work every day. He said, but at the end of the day, they don't matter. What matters is the Manchester United top team. He said, we need to have the best players. He said, Ben, the best thing that matters is the fans. He said, because if the fans are happy, he said, I'll fill the stadium. If the stadium's full, the sponsors will come. Then all the money etc. will come and we'll be able to yeah, do many, many things. And the third thing that matters is winning. Because if you win, fans are happy, the players progress. He said, and they're the only things that matter. So he said, in your business, just work out the same three things. I love that. <laughs> so that's, that's something I never forgot. Oh, so I love that. I love that. You walk into clubs, you walk into clubs, and you you never hear the end of them trying to tell you all the things that matter. And the only clubs that are ever happy are the ones that win. And the funniest thing is, and this and this this is what sends you backwards. You're better off walking in and saying, Oh, look, guys, all I want to do is I want to develop from the bottom up. I want to make everyone, I give everyone a rose. I want to do this, that, and the other. And it, and I watch it, and you see all those, like, it all ends It all ends in tears. The only thing, it's not the only thing, but, of course, it's a you know, top-down, bottom-up approach. You, you, you've got to care. I mean, so you've got to care. The biggest thing you've got to have, you've just got to care. But the greatest care you can give, the greatest care you can give is to make the main team in that place win. Because if that main team in that place wins, everybody else is going to be better off. Yes. The funniest thing is 
that as you try to make that team win, so many times the people underneath are trying to work out, you know, that, that somehow you're doing it wrong. And I go, that's fine. Then let's let's make the top team lose. And you watch, there'd be anarchy within minutes. Yes. Anarchy within minutes. Uh, yes. yeah. And that doesn't matter from under sevens to the test match team. You go and watch junior sport. And, uh, yeah, it's probably changed a little bit. You know, my kids are older now. But, um, yeah, junior sport, you know, 15 years ago, you, you coach the under 10s. It doesn't matter. Like, at the end of the day, if the, if, the, if the kids are losing, the parents are complaining, their kid's not playing for long enough, you know, something wrong, they want to go somewhere else. And as soon as the team's winning, what a great experience it is, you know. And, and unfortunately, that's just sport. You know, don't don't get away from the fact that there is a scoreboard. And um, if they keep score, try and score more points than the opposition, then you'll smile more. I love that. Mate, two more questions. I love that answer. What makes a good coach? Actually, I'll tie this in with the second one. Uh, what makes a good coach and what piece of advice would you give any young coach starting out? To any young coach starting out, you got you just got to dare yourself to dream. Right? But you've got to be prepared to sacrifice and work hard enough to make those dreams be real. When I say sacrifice, I don't think a lot of people understand what you've got to sacrifice. Yeah. Like, you potentially have to sacrifice so much that I wouldn't recommend anybody do it um, unless they want to. Um, because it's so, it's so hard. It's so hard to get... It's so hard to get to that place that you're dreaming of. You know, it's very, very hard. Um, you need a little bit of luck and uh, that sort of thing. But I think to be a good coach, you just got to care. People can say lots of things. You've got to care. You've got to, you've got to have a lot of passion, um, but you've got to care. You've got to care about the game. You've got to care about the people. And that care can be both putting an arm around people and sometimes the greatest care is incredibly harsh. And, and to be a good coach, you can't need to be loved. It's a very hard thing to learn, but you've got to accept that a lot of people aren't going to like you because you can only ever select so many. And even some of those guys, you're not their favourite. But hopefully, yeah, the, the, more, the, the better you do it, Usually, like to think the majority are with you. There's always a couple. Of, there's always a couple in your team who are doubting you. As Jack Gibson used to say, the trick is to keep the five that you know. The five. There's five that love you, and there's five that don't. And there's five who aren't sure. You got to keep the five who aren't sure away from the five who don't love you. Um, I, can't, I don't know if that's quite true, but um, I think the best coaches. If you look across world sport, they're usually guys who are good at what they did. They weren't the greatest players. They had something left. Yes. So therefore, like my brother was an international player at a young age. You know, I grew up was fantastic. You know, um, and 
So, geez, I want to be like, no, I looked like him and I could play pretty much the same style and all that sort of stuff. But I was, a, you know, I was a metre slower. I was a, I was, I was 10% off him. The 10% makes you a test match player or a good first grader. Yes. You know what I mean? And so, I know Tony, a really successful guy. And uh, probably because he played in those matches and did everything, he didn't quite have the passion to want to necessarily be a coach. Didn't have to be a coach. Didn't need yes. to, you know what I mean? So, wonderfully well in business. Um, whereas for me, I really wanted to be a pro, you know, so I was lucky enough that when I went from club footy, I, I never forget when I got my first pro gig, you know what I mean? You get on the plane, you go to the famous stadiums, and I'm lucky enough now I've played or coached in every – I've not played and coached in now because I did the rugby league one year in every stadium in the world. It's, it's like, wow. And um, so I suppose – you uh, feel quite lucky to experience that. But um, I think the best coaches have that little bit they didn't achieve. And so, therefore, that's the driving force. So, as I keep going back to the same people, but, you know, people, last night there was an article in and, and Campo was getting stuck into Eddie Jones. Couldn't believe it. You know, I thought they were teammates or something, but he was saying oh, Eddie was still angry about being dropped for Phil Coons. That's what you need. Yes. Coaches, coaches, it's 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 a ruthless routine and discipline that you can't understand until you get there. You know, my wife put up with me for you know a long, long time. Um, and even then, you know, she'll say she, she can understand, and I'll say, Deb, the only thing harder than you having to live with me is me having to live with myself. <laughs> oh, I can relate I mean, to that. Wrong, right? I love it. But yeah. it's it's a hard life. It's a hard life living with yourself because you know that the only way to be successful, there is no other way. I don't care. You can get me a 1,000 coaches. I'm going to tell you I've studied a lot of the, the top coaches. They might all be different, and we all do it different ways. But there's this ruthless discipline and commitment that just never stops. Yes. And, and if you think it's going to stop, then you're just going to be one of the blokes who comes second. It's like the boxers when they, they get in and they say, the world champ, he's 31 and 1. You know what I mean? What's and, that saying? You can't, you, can't, uh, you can't guarantee hard work will make you successful, but if you don't work hard, you definitely won't be successful. If you don't work hard at it, you know, but... but you can also work hard at it. The hardest bit, I think, is that you've got to care. And there's a difference between, there's a vast difference between people who work hard at it. Um, and, you know, you, you, you do see some guys, you think, God, they're really, really smart. Um, they're putting the work in and that sort of thing. And it's not happening for them. And then sometimes you hear behind the scenes, um, I've all got apologies. I've, I've got that many things I reckon I'm in coaching that I'm probably not that great at. I'm pretty good at pretty good at a lot of it, I hope, but I'm probably not that great at some of it. Um, but you you often find if you don't know how to care, then you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna find trouble. Man, that's great advice. Last question: If you could tell 18 year old Billy Melrose one thing, what would it be? Oh, I'd say I used to live. I, I used to get too caught up in in losing. I couldn't play in the present. 
Um, so I was a good player. As I say, I wanted it too much. And so I thought, you know, we, we had quite a uh, strong coach back in the day. We played para. Let's be serious. Back in those days, the West, yeah, once you got the Paramount, I lived in the hills area. Once you went past that, you dropped off a cliff. You're in the country. You know what I mean? That was, that was the West then. You couldn't get any further west. So it was a, an interesting childhood. Uh, you know, a tough old place back then. Has some fantastic characters. A lot of the boys, you know, didn't come from advantaged backgrounds, so it could really take hard coaching. You know, hard coaching was just like a normal day out. So, you know, brutal. You know, just the, the things, the things you just couldn't, wouldn't even be tolerated now what, what happened then. But, um our coach was Paul Dalton, a really innovative guy, very smart, should have coached Australia, you know, but um, of course his man management style was suited to the West, he would have yes. said it, uh, and that was that was a bit much for for uh, a lot of people. So uh, Paul's way was uh, Paul's way on the highway, and, uh, you know, so if he did it, he did a 22 dropout and it went out on the fall or something like that, most likely you were going to find yourself in second grade. And so, oh, geez, you know, I'd be... Uh, practicing and practicing and then you'd go and do something wrong but of course that's probably just because the bloke who was going to put in was better than you and uh so i think gee i better go and practice for another half an hour you know what i mean on that same thing and of course i was practicing practicing training uh relentlessly i was a good trainer and you realize you're just playing consciously all the time and uh so what it, what it taught me um eventually like after we'd won a couple of premier i'd been i'd just been part of them. um i ended up moving to West Harbour because the guy, you know, I wanted to be in first grade every week. I wanted to try and get better. I didn't move because I didn't love para. Um, so I moved and I remember playing next to Steve James, who was a wonderful player, and West Harbour were down a bit, but out of these players. And straight away, I just felt different. I felt I just started trusting myself and uh, we'll call it playing in the present, if you want a cliche. So... I had the skills. Uh, I just thought too much about it. You know, if I lost, then I'd try and double down on things. Whereas once I'd learned to just trust myself and, and uh, you know, I was good enough, release my mind. Um, that allowed me to be, a, you know, I played really well then and uh, became, you know, a better, a, a better player. Yeah. My best, I think. And I think that's the biggest thing that I learned. Uh, for my coaching, um, that confidence is everything. So if people say, what do I coach? I say, I coach confidence. Now, how do you do that? It's impossible for me to tell you. I just know how to do it. Yes. Uh, I don't even know why I know how to do it. Um, and I've been in interviews where people go, this guy's crazy. That's <laughs> fine. And I'm crazy. <laughs> you know what I mean? I just, I just know, just like the stuff I don't know, the stuff I do know, can't explain it, but we haven't got the time. Right. Um, I think confidence is the biggest thing, and if you know how to get, if you know how to coach confidence into your players, then that releases them to uh, become their best. Mate, that is a fantastic way to end. Thank you so much for this, mate. Super Thanks, grateful Zoe. for your time, mate. Yeah, pleasure. Been fun.